pay the doctor for staying with him, Vincent drew a painting of the doctor entitled Portrait of Dr. Felix. The doctor hated the painting and used it as part of a chicken coop. Oh! Oh, that's oh, yeah. a dick move. Yeah. 120 years later, though, the painting was estimated to be worth $50 million. Oh, there you go. Dr. <laughs> Felix, come on, dude. Yep. Get, get with it. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we pick two dead people and talk about their lives. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, James D. Say hi, James. Roses are red, violets are blue. One of these days, I'm going to shoot you. Great! We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down these characters from the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that James and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in these people's lives and how they responded to them. We also hope to give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, James, who do we have this week? Jacques Tati and Vincent Van Gogh. Hmm, I heard at least one French name in there, so I'm screwed. I can't pronounce French words Pronounce French words to save my life. No, not even the French can pronounce French words. Mm, I don't know if that's true. It's a fact. Read the news, you ignorant bastard. Hey, I read the news. I'm subscribed to Knitting Monthly. That's not news. It is. Just not the news you like. You'd like Knitting Monthly to be censored, wouldn't you? No, I... Say what you want, James. <laughs> You'd like Knitting Monthly to be censored, wouldn't you? No, of course not. Uh, say what you want, James. Say what you want, but no one will ever believe you. Mm-mm, Look, no, let's just go down to the history lab and get this episode done so I can get away from you. Righto! A Frenchman, a Dutchman, both visionary artists in their time. Both with personal problems so serious that they would depress a kitten made of rainbows. One, a filmmaker known for his eccentric characters and stunning set building. The other, a painter known worldwide for his stylistic vision and work. In the battle for who has more to tell their therapist about, only one can brush with fate and make the cut. So James, I was thinking, mm -hmm. if, if you had to decide one country to take over, mm. which would it be? I, that is, I, I have a question. Right no, it's okay. not actually. New Zealand. Oh, why New Zealand? Because of all the sheep. They <laughs> have 70 million sheep on those two really? islands. Yeah. 70 million? Yes. What do they do with all of them? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> They've uh, got it bad for sheep. <laughs> gosh. Uh, okay, so. I don't know. <clears throat> who, who would you conquer? Oh, God. Uh, hmm. I'm. Fallen between Zimbabwe mm. and Manchuria. <laughs> Manchuria is not a country. It was in the past. <laughs> That's true. And if you believe anything that the Buddhists say, time is an illusion. So ah. I could take over Manchuria. Mm. I just have to think really hard about it. <laughs> are, are most Buddhists pacifists, though? Uh, well, you could take over a country with passive resistance. There have been militant Buddhists in the past. We oh. could bring that back. That's kind of weird. It's it like is. the opposite <laughs> of what Buddhism's about. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, let's uh, let's get on with this. So, sure. uh, hmm. computer, bring up Jacques Tati and Vincent Van Gogh. Affirmative, my lord. So, I don't know anything about Jacques Tati. Okay. Uh, what is he best known for? Jacques Tati is arguably best known for his film Playtime. Hmm. Yeah, which is a... It's, is, is it a... What kind of film is it? It's, uh... He was French. He was French. It's a very French film. Let's okay. put it that way. Very French New Wave. Um, and that's probably not... Well, yeah, it was French New Wave. It's crazy. Hmm. Um, if you watch it, you will either love it or hate it. And probably you'll hate it, but, uh... Anyway, so, he's known for Playtime, but he's really, really well known for his hilarious Mr. Bean-esque old man character huh. called Monsieur Hulot. Never yeah. heard of him. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I guess I can tell you what he looks like. Yeah. Uh, he looks suspiciously like a character in his movies called Monsieur Hulot. Uh, that's because he plays Monsieur Hulot in every movie in which the character appears. Oh, nice. But, uh, jokes inside, the nuts and bolts of his appearance are as follows. He's tall. Real, real <laughs> tall. Uh, he seems to always be wearing an expression of some kind in photographs of him, so you can tell he's just made for the screen. Uh, he also has perfect skin. God bless him. Mm. The touch of a tattoo. <laughs> 
I love the touch of a tati. Okay, God. Uh, So uh, tell us uh, what Vincent Van Gogh is best known for. He is best known for being one of the best podcasters in the world. (laughs) (laughs) So really, though. Vincent Van Gogh is best known for being one of the most well-known and influential post-impressionist painters in Western art. Mm. He also painted more than 2,000 paintings. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, James, but Mm -hmm. 2,000 is a pretty big number. It is. Last time I checked. Yeah, 2,000. Yeah, you're not quite there yet. No, but close. Mm. Three. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, what did he look like? Uh, Fat and happy. Brilliant. Like an Italian guy named Polly opened an (laughs) Italian restaurant and ran the bakery next door. Oh, God. He's always pictured with a big smile and most of the time a cigar. Wow, that's he super interesting. He genuinely because... looks like a happy dude, except for the pictures where he's in what? prison. He's not too oh. happy in prison. What? Oh, wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. First of all, I didn't even know people smoked cigars around that time. Oh, let me see alive. Uh, late 1800s. Why did I always imagine he was alive in like the 1600s? I'm I don't know. Pretty dumb, I guess. But mm. uh, So he's always got a cigar and yeah. he's not too happy in prison. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, the thing about the prison thing is that doesn't quite sound right to me. It, I'd never imagined Vincent Van Gogh in prison. Wait. Shit. That's the description of Ferdinand de Mara. <laughs> well, shit, man. I told you we need to keep this history lab more organized. Oh. Oh, okay. So okay. what does he actually look like? Uh, hmm. Okay. Uh, Vincent van Gogh looks very different from that. Okay. There's a famous self-portrait that he drew of himself aptly entitled Self-Portrait. Oh, good Which name. he drew in 1887. <laughs> okay. In this painting, van Gogh has combed bla- back blonde hair and a receding hairline almost as bad as mine. <laughs> he's also got a well-groomed red beard and mustache, almost as red as mine. That's impressive. And finally, he's got eyes that are windowed into his dark, gloomy, and depressed soul. Oh. Almost in, as dark and gloomy as mine. Oh my god, well, that's quite an achievement. Mm, yes. Uh, so, um, I think we just need to just jump right into Jacques Tati's okay. early life. Um, and I will just start by saying that Tati actually has an extremely fascinating family nice. history. Uh, so we'll start with a couple of interesting bits. Uh, one uh, of his grandfathers was a general in the Imperial Russian Army. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he's French. Yeah, but wait, wait, wait. So Tati is actually short for Tatashov. Oh, that's awesome. A lot of people know that. So, huh. um, so his other grandfather was actually friends with Van Gogh, so oh. <laughs> weird crossover there. Um, Tati was born in France in 1907. As a kid, he was an average student in school and was known for really enjoying horseback riding and was apparently great at tennis, which hmm. I guess that's not surprising since he's the size of a redwood tree. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he can just stretch all the way across the court. He just covers the entire net. <laughs> it's just basically elastigirl. <laughs> But French and not girl. <laughs> so he so same thing. Yeah. So, uh, he quit school at sixteen and began training as a framer. That isn't farmer. It's framer. Okay. Uh, with his grandfather, and in 1907 he joined the dragoons as part of his required military service. Huh. Uh, but he wasn't there for long, just a year or so. Uh, and afterward, he became a semi-pro rugby player. Which Whoa. is kind of badass. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, it was during this time that he discovered his abilities in entertainment. Mm. He would do improv skits for his team and whatnot, and they really, really liked it. Why wouldn't you? Um, so he decided to become a full-time entertainer, nice. which was met with a lot of concern from his friends and family. Hmm. Uh, at this time, the global economic crisis was raging in France, and money was short, but this didn't stop short Tati. He's not short. Good for him. But he is short on cash. <laughs> so, so he gets involved in musicals. And has a bit of a quick rise to fame. He's uh, best known... Uh, he, I'm sorry, he, sh- he was known as an excellent actor and comedian uh, and got the attention of a whole lot of important people who I won't list because it's not that important. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, unless you're like some sort of academic who knows who all these people are. I don't know. <laughs> we'll leave it to them. Not us. <laughs> However, there was one reviewer and writer who was especially impressed with Tati's abilities and her review was pivotal for him. Hmm. Her name was... Uh, I'm going to fuck this up, sorry. but <laughs> Sidney Gabrielle Collette, known colloquially as just Collette. Mm-hmm. She was described, or rather, she described Tati as a, uh, an entire acting troupe, all contained in one person. Oh, wow! <laughs> and here's a quote: uh, "He has devised a way of being both the player, the ball, and the tennis racket. Jacques Tati, the horse and rider conjured, will show all of Paris the living image of that legendary creature, the centaur." Uh, what? <laughs> So he's a centaur now. Okay. Um, but anyway, so as a centaur, he was acting on stage. 
Um, he was being cast in various short films, and none of these were like wildly successful, but all of which captured Tati's animation, uh, animation, imagination, <laughs> and his animation, I suppose. Um, but he was absolutely enthralled with the medium of film, and almost immediately began to shift his attention to filmmaking and film acting. Hmm. Uh, but then World War II happened, ah. and Tati was sent back to the Dragoons. Ah. He fought in the Battle of Sedan, but went out of action almost as soon as the armistice between France and Germany was declared in 1940. Oh, yeah. So he kind of just went losing home side. And, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> kind of just went home to some chalet, I think, and just hung around for a while. <laughs> um, but anyway, so eventually he got back to Paris, uh, where he got back to acting and met a man named Frank Orain. Frank. Yeah, or, oh. I'm sorry, Fred. Fred Orain. Sorry. <laughs> Frank, Fred, what's the difference? <laughs> but anyway, so Fred was a film director in Nice. Uh, and here is where Tati really gets going. But we'll have to come back in a bit and see how that all goes down. Okay. But I think for now, it's time to talk about Vincent Van Depression. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. Are you ready for this? Uh, okay. I'm going to try to, like... Not sink into a depressive yeah, episode. Listeners, I apologize for this. Van Gogh's life is so fucking depressing. This is your trigger warning. Yeah, right now. Um, so, uh, tell us about Vincent Van Gogh's early life. Okay. I'll just start it off by how he described it himself. Okay. Van Gogh described his upbringing as austere, cold, and sterile. Oh, no! <laughs> and he wasn't wrong. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So, uh, Vincent Van Gogh was born on March 30th, 1853 in the Netherlands. Oh, no! <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's nothing wrong with the Netherlands. <laughs> yeah. Here's, here's where you can say, oh, no. Okay. His father was a minister in the Dutch Reformed Church, and his oh. mother came from a rich and prosperous family. Oh, that's not bad. Wait. Well, uh, yeah, I don't know. So even though his dad was only a minister, Vincent's family was well off. In fact, the family had a house, a maid, two cooks, a gardener, and a carriage with a horse. Wow. Classic wealthy church leaders. Okay, okay, okay. We're not talking about Joel Osteen here. <laughs> Sorry, I, I can't get started. Uh, his mom was kind of a religious psycho who uh. was obsessed with having a strong and tight-knit family. Oh, Jesus, now I'm getting triggered. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much everybody felt claustrophobic around her because of this. Oh, now I'm really triggered. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My mom is, is a special lady. So mm. Vincent Van Aaron was a rather sad <laughs> child. <laughs> Uh, he was always deep in, in thought, though. He okay. began interested in art at a very young age, and his mom seems to have encouraged his drawing in the way that she wanted, rather than how he wanted to draw. Um, mm. God damn it. You're hitting every mark. <laughs> uh, Vincent was also homeschooled. Oh, God! And taught by a governess for some time until 1866, when his parents sent him to a middle school in Tilburg. Oh. Where, no surprise, he was deeply unhappy and lonely. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So after only two years here, he returned home. In 1860. Oh, and by the way, the returning home is just just get used to that. Okay, <laughs> he keeps moving in with his parents. Oh, yeah. Uh, Vincent it, Van not going, <laughs> going Vincent Van basement. Vincent not go. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. In 1869, at the age of 16, Vincent got a position at art dealers or at an art dealers organization in the Hague. 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 <laughs> I knew it was Hague. Yeah, we I pronounced saying. Prague Prague. <laughs> yeah. In the Hague, uh, thanks to his uncle's help, so okay. he successfully finished his training and continued working in this area for a while. Okay. This was probably the happiest. Vincent would ever be. Working at the Hague? <laughs> yeah. Okay. He had a job he enjoyed doing, was away from his mother, was making more money than his father. Good. And Vincent found love. Yay! He fell head over heels in love with his landlord's daughter. Oh, no. A young lass <laughs> named Eugenie Lawyer. Eugenie? Eugenie. Yeah. Maybe it's Eugenie. Eugenie. That's uh, probably right. Yeah, but Eugenie's funnier. Eugenie? <laughs> She's not going to be around for long, so... Oh, no. Yeah, so... No. <laughs> after he confessed, confessed his feelings for her, she rejected him because she was actually engaged to another man. Oh, no! <laughs> Rough. Oh, God! So, Vincent spirals down into a life of isolation and depression. Mm. He was transferred to work in Paris, but he lost all interest in what he was doing, so he was dismissed from the art dealer world in 1875. Wow, can you imagine dismissing Van Gogh from the art dealer world? <laughs> well, they didn't know at the time, I mm -hmm. guess. So. I guess he didn't know at the time. Was he painting yet? Uh, he has some rough sketches at this point, but not really any paintings. Okay. Yeah. So, in 1876, Vincent took work as an unpaid teacher in England. Oh, shit. Which isn't really work. No. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, this arrangement kind of went to shit, and so he quit. Mm. He returned home in 1876, where he lived in his parents' basement <laughs> and moderated a red page. <laughs> <laughs> For the next six months, he worked a bookshop, but was very unhappy with the position and would spend much of his time doodling or translating Bible verses into English, French, and German. That sounds like a 
useful way to spend your time. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> wow. Uh, he was also becoming more and more religiously fervent. Okay. So much, in fact, that he decided to become a pastor, just like his father had done. All right. So his parents helped out, and Vincent went to studying theology in Amsterdam in 1877. And this is where we will leave Mr. Van Gogh for now. I gotta say, that is really surprising to hear that he he went into theology. Right. Because nobody ever talks about that. Or rather, I've never heard about it. Yeah, and it's, um, it plays a big part in his life. Mm. Um, and it's also interesting just that going from an artist to theology like i know we talked about this before mm-hmm. but theology and art don't always get along too well now now i'm thinking about frank schaefer because yeah he, he yeah. went from being you know big christian filmmaker to being just some painter hmm. um but hey they're ba- he's basically van gogh modern van gogh i guess what are you gonna do <laughs> his life is not as depressing though uh <laughs> oh Oh, oh no. Just wait. This is nothing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I say we take a quick break, yep. and when we come back, we'll talk about Jacques Tati's adult life. Sounds good. Get ready. And we are back to We Talk About Dead People. And when we left off, we were talking about Vincent Van Gogh's very sad early life. Mm. Um, even though, it, you know, on the surface, it doesn't sound like it was that sad. It's not horrible always yet. Always had a place to say. <laughs> always had apparently plenty of money. You know, now he's getting a theology, which is, eh, eh, that depends on your opinion on the matter. Right. Um, but anyway, let's uh, let's go back to Jacques Tati. Mm-hmm. And when we left Monsieur Tati, he had just met a director named Fred, not Frank, Fred Orain. Hmm. And that's, I'm probably mispronouncing Orain, but that's just what it looks like. It's these French and Dutch words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Fred and Tati decided it was time to start producing films together and started the company called, I think it's Katie Films. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it was in this environment that Tati developed his famous comedy character, Monsieur Hulot. All right. I want to hear more about this Okay. Guy. So the first film Hulot appeared in was Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, which was about an older, slightly invisible man taking a mandatory <laughs> vacation to the beach. Well, slightly invisible? So, like, the thing about Hulot's character... And it's one of the best things ever, is that when he's on screen, nobody seems to notice him, even though he's doing these outrageous things. <laughs> That's um, awesome. I know, it's really great. Um, and a lot of reviewers described him as being, like, the invisible man, huh. because, like, that was the whole point. He was supposed to represent, a, a, like, a class yeah. um, that people just didn't see, like, the oh, elderly wow. upper, or rather, elderly middle class. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> which is great, Yeah. I think. Um, but anyway, so Monsieur Hulot's Holiday. This film was very French, which is to say that the themes were very much about political and social classes. And retreating. Mm. Oh, God. <laughs> James. Sorry. Couldn't <laughs> help it. Uh, interestingly, uh, interestingly, this film largely inspired the more recent movie, Mr. Bean's Holiday, hmm. uh, which pays actually quite a bit of tribute to Hulot's first adventure. Oh, so it's a good thing? Yeah, actually. Oh, nice. uh, it's actually a good movie. <laughs> Uh, in fact, I may have mentioned this before, but Rowan Atkinson uh, says that Hulot's character was the inspiration for his character, Mr. Hmm. Bean, uh, which is not surprising. When you see Mr. Hulot on screen, the first thing uh, you'll likely think of is Mr. Bean. Uh, that is, if you know who Mr. Bean is. Millennials don't know the Mr. Bean. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. No, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so this film, uh, Hulot's Vacation or whatever, uh, was so successful that it won an Academy Award outright for Best <laughs> Original Screenplay, and it was adored by audiences far and wide. So, in classic Hollywood, or you might say French film fashion, it's time to make a sequel, right? Yeah, it sounds... No, cool. wrong. Mm-mm. Instead, Tati took his time and waited a few years before releasing another film involving the Hulot character. Hmm. Uh, he was not only delayed by his lack of interest in making lots of money off of this character, hmm. uh, but he was also involved in a car accident oh. and then had a dispute with Fred Arrain, at which point Tati left Katie Films and started his own company, the legendary Spectra Films, in 1956. Well, the name is much cooler. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> the first film produced at Spectra was the sequel to Mr. Hulot's Holiday. It was called My Uncle, or oh. in French, Mon Uncle. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, but anyway, so the plot of My Uncle centers around Hulot and his nephew struggling together to keep up with modernity and ferocious consumerism. Hmm. Yeah, it's like if G.K. Chesterton made a movie. <laughs> uh, so now the important thing to note about this is that the film itself is rather orthodox, and this is, again, important. There's a main character, a discernible plot, and clear themes. This will all go away in the future. Hmm. Uh, anyway, my uncle just cleaned up with the awards. Tati won an Oscar and was offered literally anything that the Academy wow. could give him. So he decided that he wanted to visit Stan Laurel, Max Sennett, and Buster Keaton. Hmm. And I think it's Sennett, but I really don't know. Uh, pretty cool, really. So he visited them all in their nursing homes and basically just said, Hello, you're cool. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to do that. Uh, so the idea now is to make a lot of Hulu films and just take the money home, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it would be easy to just keep making sketch comedies 
interviews with Hulo and getting all these awards without trying anything weird, right? It sounds like the safe thing to do. Wrong. Mm -mm. Enter the film Playtime. Now, Playtime has been sucked off for years by film academics for being amazing and groundbreaking all on its own. But film academics, let's be honest, often like really confusing and heady films. Sure. Yeah. So at this time, Tati was a bit frustrated with Hulo. Hmm. And, uh, you know, that's because he just didn't want to be just a sketch artist. Sure. Um, It was just too easy. All he had to do was drop the character in any given situation and it was an instant win. But Tati was not interested in instant wins. So he decided to make a film that was completely different from everything of all time. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Wow. Uh, So Playtime, which I have seen twice, is a film about, quote, everybody. Everybody. Yeah, everybody. The best way to describe it is to just compare it to a Where's Waldo book. Uh, whoa, okay. Um, yeah. So the film is shot in 70mm, meaning that the image is just huge, and this plays to the film's strengths. Every shot in the film is just packed with content. Hmm. Uh, for example, one of the first shots in the film is just that of an airport terminal. This shot holds for like five minutes, and you can simultaneously watch a man in an argument with his wife, a nurse doing something or other, I don't really know, a janitor doing a terrible job, a <laughs> pair of nuns whose hats flap like birds, and more. And there is no main character, no main event. It wow. is literally just an on-screen collage of actions and events. And Whoa. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that would not take off in today's cinema world. Oh, no, <laughs> um, unless you were like some kind of academic. But I think you know most of the time when these kinds of films come out, and they they literally later on figure out that they were groundbreaking. Hmm, yeah, um, or just decide that they were. That seems to be kind of a trend in the art world. Mm-hmm. I know it, it comes up with Van Gogh too. Yeah. So in a few years, mother or whatever that fucking Darren Aronofsky <laughs> movie is, they're going to be like, oh, it's the best uh, goddamn American film ever made. Oh. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's good, pure modernism. <laughs> anyway, so <clears throat> there might as well talk about some of the good things about the film because yeah. it's really, I mean, it is a big, big deal, this film. Um, but my favorite things about it, and again, not a huge fan, um, but I have a lot of respect for what he was trying to do, is that oftentimes like background characters are just cardboard cutouts of people in various states of action. Huh. Uh, there's a scene where uh, Hulot rings a bell and a character emerges at the end of an incredibly long hallway and we have to watch his entire approach. Oh my gosh. It takes like a full minute on screen of just watching this guy start as a dot at the end of the hallway <laughs> and then turn into a person one step at a time. What the hell? It's actually one of the funniest scenes in the movie because his, his feet are like super loud um but anyway there's a scene where a glass door breaks at a fancy restaurant so the doorman just picks up the doorknob and pretends like there's still a glass door there uh the absurdity knows no bounds and if you can see this film on a big enough screen it's quite the experience uh that being said while it ended up being an absolute critical success it will probably bore most people which is a problem why well, the other part of this is that Playtime was obscenely expensive. Ah, yeah. yeah. In fact, it was literally the most expensive film made in France up to that time. Wow. Which was 1967. <laughs> and why was it so expensive? Well, Tati literally built a city for this film. A he, city? Yeah, a city. <laughs> okay. He made entire buildings, backdrops, car lots, oh etc. Most of which could be pushed around on wheels for this picture. <laughs> it required its own power station in order to function oh properly. The shooting schedule ended up taking three years due to various problems. Almost all of the sound work was done in post, which can mean, Whoa. you know, which means that every sound in the film was recorded later in a studio and edited in. Oh, God. This took nine months. Oh. Yeah. Um, though, actually, the sound is one of the best things about it, because hmm. clearly every sound was thought about yeah. individually. Well, I guess like, that makes like, sense. In particular, the, like the footsteps, like the hallway scene. Yeah. They're just obscenely loud and obnoxious. Um, and they put it in there for a reason. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, one of the major themes of the film uh, is the confusion and immensity of modernity, and believe me, the image pays off. <laughs> uh, it totally captures the feel of what it's like to be lost in a big city that moves way too fast. Now, I have a question. Mm. Where did he build the city? Oh, God. I didn't even think about that. I know it was in France somewhere. Okay. Um, but it was basically just this empty lot that he repurposed. That's and incredible. If you go look at the set or like the set construction photos, there's like machinery everywhere, all these <laughs> fake cars. And what's funny is that all the cars are basically the same car. <laughs> um, and uh, the funny thing about this, though, is it was released as a Hulot film, but he hmm. barely appears in it. Hmm. Um, he just kind of like shows up every now and then to like buy soap, which is a great scene. Um, oh, and that was a thing for him, right? He showed up in all his previous mm-hmm. films. He showed up in all his previous films as a main character. Yeah. Um, and actually, we'll get back to that, what happened because he wasn't a main character. Hmm. Okay. Um, so the audiences didn't seem to like it. Mm. Uh, for one, the film was 155 minutes Jesus long. Christ. And for a film with no plot, <laughs> oh. that's a lot to ask an audience to sit through. Um, so you can make a point about the chaos of modern life. Uh, Tati lost so much money on this production that he literally went bankrupt. Wow. And he went all over France asking for donations so he could finish the film. Uh, and when he couldn't pay his creditors, 
the banks literally impounded all of his movies, <laughs> wow. including the unfinished playtime. Ugh. So Tati had to sell his house and move back to Paris. Spectre Films was liquidated over the course of a few years, and the rights to its films were auctioned off to various buyers for pretty much peanuts. Ugh. And that's where we leave Tati, returning to find about how he spent his last years in a bit. Ugh. But I, before we do that, I think mm-hmm. I want to point out this whole thing about the Hulot character. Okay. So, like, he's he's known for this character, and he got really famous with this character. Um, but he didn't like that. I know I mentioned it earlier, mm-hmm. he didn't just want to devolve into a sketch comic. Yeah. So his whole thing with Playtime was to sort of phase the character out. Hmm. So Hulot appears in it, but not very much. And there's actually a film, and I'll talk about it later on, where he literally kills the Hulot character. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So he was Take not... that establishment. <laughs> yeah, he was not happy with, uh, hmm. with how people... Um, responded to this character that basically memed him. <laughs> you know, that's so interesting. Like in modern, modern, in the modern world, mm-hmm. how uh, I see that in so many for so many artists, like you can only be what the world wants you mm-hmm. to be, rather mm-hmm. than just yourself. Yeah. So everybody, be like Taylor Swift. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Release an album that is completely not you. Um, for the money. For the money. Yeah. Make a living <laughs> off of shocking people or whatever. I don't know. Uh, I listened to Taylor Swift's newest song, or not newest song, but one of the songs from her newest album, and it was just like, oh my god, I didn't want to listen to like heavy gothic metal about yeah. death. <laughs> it's not metal, and you are doing a disservice to metal fans <laughs> everywhere, so fuck you. Okay, we'll just call it sludge metal and move on. <laughs> Uh, fair enough. Um, so, uh, hey, let's talk about Vincent Van Depression's adult life. You know, I'm gonna have to take a break before this. Okay. Sorry, listeners, nope, but it's totally fine. It's too depressing. It's too depressing. Let's take a break. Once <laughs> <laughs> we are back to we talk about dead people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're back. Do we talk uh, about dead people? Uh, you know, we can never do. German or Russian characters again. No, because we, our accents are just they're too just terrible. Awful. They're terrible. Yes. Yeah. I mean, most of my accents are pretty terrible. Yeah. But I can't wait till we get some, to some Scottish characters. Oh God. <laughs> Fuck that up so bad. Yeah. Mm. Mm. We got to do some more Southerners too. Oh, for sure. Because uh, I, I, I think I can pull off a pretty good Southern drawl. Yeah, you're not bad. No, not bad. But hey, that's because I spent so much time in Texas. Mm. True. But not in the place where people have accents. The first couple of years, first. Couple first couple of months I was like super confused because everyone just kind of sounded like nor- like not normal but northerners yeah um, and I was like mm, this is bizarre <laughs> and I was talking to some one of my friends at the dining hall about it I was like this I expected everyone here to be like wearing cowboy hats and shit and you know and then some guy comes over and he goes he goes well, you're not in the right part of Texas for that kind of thing. And I'm like, oh, shit. He's like, yeah, you want to head out head out east or west to get that accent. I'm like, oh, shit. So in the center of Texas, and for all of you who have never been there, they're not all cowboys. In fact, they're just pretty much Yankees in the wrong place. <laughs> yeah. I remember when Texas was like, trying to secede a few years ago, mm-hmm. I think when Obama got reelected or something, mm-hmm. and all the cities in Texas were like, we don't want to secede. <laughs> well, I remember when I, I went to the U.K., um, they were like, oh, don't tell them you're American. Tell them you're Texan. Hmm. Yeah, because they were like, um, they love Texans. America's their, American people they're kind of indifferent to. Yeah. But Texans they love because they you know, they ask all the questions you would expect to be asked in a foreign country. Sure, yeah. Like, oh, they're cowboys? The people ride horses to school? <laughs> and of course we had one Texan there who's like, yeah, I rode my horse to school. And he wasn't kidding. No. <laughs> uh, so uh, they love that. But they also told me explicitly, do not tell them you're, that you're from Chicago. Oh, um, yeah. But I did once and I got asked... Um, if I was involved with the mob, <laughs> or if I knew uh, anyone related to Al Capone, and that's uh, so true. I was in I was in Italy once, and you know the restaurant owner was like, "Oh, so where in the U.S. are you from?" And my dad just goes, "We're from Chicago." <laughs> and the restaurant with the owner, without beating a or without missing a beat, he just goes, "Ah." <laughs> <laughs> Accurate. Yep. <laughs> My commute every day to the job I don't have. Exactly. I got a Tommy gun hanging out the window. <laughs> and a bottle of bathtub gin in my stomach. <laughs> wearing a trench coat. Yeah. No. Oh, God. Hey, Not we wrong. Should t- we got to talk about Al Capone at some point on here. We do. We've mentioned him a few times. Mm-hmm. but yeah. We could talk about Al Capone and the guy from The Untouchables and, mm, and yeah. like a whole thing. Mm-hmm. But anyway, for now, we're just going to get right back into Vincent Van Gogh's yes. adult life uh, and hear about depression and sadness, apparently. So... Sit down. I am um, sitting. And look out the window. Just the windows are closed. <laughs> we don't have. We windows. are so underground. Okay. Well, this is more for our listeners. Just okay. Okay. 
breathe in the fresh air. Everything's going to be okay. Your life is not Van Gogh's life. Look beyond to the sparrow in the forest and see that he Don't is... Don't start this again. <laughs> okay. It is stupider than you. <laughs> uh, Alright, Van Gogh's life. Okay. So when we last left him, he was studying theology in Amsterdam because he desired to be a pastor. Okay. He prepared to take the entrance exam for the University of... Wait. Can you desire to be a pastor, or do you have to be called to be a pastor? Mm, good question. The real question is, are yes. pastors allowed to have desire at all? I all of our know. pastor <laughs> listeners, we need you to, to write in on this. Yes. That's, uh, we talk about deadpeoplepodcast.gmail.com. Write in and tell us how wrong we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, I got to give Van Gogh this. Is right. He actually really cared about his faith for okay, at good. least a short while, and oh, in, oh. The, in a good way. Like, he wanted to help people, and we'll get into that. So, okay. he prepared to take the entrance exam for the University of Amsterdam's the- Theology School, but failed the exam. Aww. Mm-hmm. What does that exam look like, I wonder? Um, Who was Jesus Christ? I don't know. I just... A, the Messiah. <laughs> B, just a man. Parentheses, Arius. <laughs> yep. C, uh-huh. the first guru. <laughs> Parentheses, Alan Watts. <laughs> okay, he never uh, said he was the first guru. He just said he was a guru. So right, yeah. yeah. Doing Zarathustra disservice mm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anyway. can't forget about the old Z-Man. I don't know. I, I, I pictured the entrance exam just like that scene in Pilgrim's Progress where you're walking <laughs> up a hill, and if your your burden successfully falls off, then you are in. <laughs> and Van Gogh had a burden. Oh. Mm, we'll get to that. Anyway, after this, he took a three-month three month course at a Protestant missionary school, but failed this class as well. Oh. This caused Vincent to do what you do when you fail theological school. Mmm, strip clubs and shitty strawberries inns. No. <laughs> he instead decided to impact people for the Lord. Oh. Missionary style. Oh! <laughs> uh, in 1879, Vincent became a missionary to the coal mining district of... Baronage, Belgium. Boronage? Boring. Baron. Boring Belgium. Okay. Boronage. <laughs> Boronage. Um, uh, and like I said, I'll give it to this guy. He really tried to do his best here. Okay. So just picture this place, right? It's a town made of, made up entirely of wretched, destitute coal miners. Oh. The whole town is just the epitome of squalor. Oh. Nobody lives, nobody lives a long life since their lungs are just full of coal suits. Okay. And there's no such thing as hope for these people. Oh, God. <laughs> so Vincent tries to bring them Jesus. Jesus. Yay! And get this, he was actually wise in how he evangelized to his congregation. Oh! He didn't speak to them from some rich and lofty tower of theology. Instead, he gave up his comfortable lodgings at a bakery to a homeless person. Oh, wow! Yeah, he then moved to a small hut where he slept on straw and dirt. He oh. basically became a member of the group he was trying to influence. That's actually really cool. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but of course, this part of the story does not have a happy ending. Oh. The church was not happy with how Vincent was portraying Christianity. Oh! <laughs> You're living like Jesus? Oh, daddy. <laughs> yeah, the whole live in poverty, sleep in dirt, live among your congregation did not make the church happy. Mm-mm. In fact, they blamed Vincent for, quote, undermining the dignity of the priesthood. Oh. <laughs> so Vincent was called back and basically fired from being a missionary. Oh my god, yeah. for that? Mm-hmm. Oh. This had a huge and devastating... Pope Joel Osteen. <laughs> keep bringing him up. I know. <laughs> uh, this had a huge and devastating impact on Vincent for a myriad of reasons. He was just beginning to make an impact on these coal miners. He didn't understand the hypocrisy of the church, etc. Mm-hmm. This left Vincent even more lonely and depressed than he had been before. I fucking believe it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He then returned home to live with his parents once again and made them um- upset and frustrated. In fact, his dad was so disappointed in Vincent's life that he tried to get him sent to an insane asylum. Oh my god! Mm, good fatherly support. <laughs> Yeah, not surprisingly, Vincent soon fled his parents' house and began living with a miner in the town of Quesmes. And again, that's miner with an E. Quesmes. <laughs> began living with a miner with an E. Okay, sorry, no. is that Quesmes or Quemwe or I, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. There's too many weird <laughs> town names. Okay. Uh, it was here that Vincent became enamored with the livelihood of those living around him, especially the lower classes. He recorded that he saw. He recorded what he saw in his private drawings. Okay. It was again about this time that Vincent's younger brother Theo encouraged Vincent to try going into art again. That's now, the man, Theo. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, Vincent and Theo had always been best of friends and continued to be so for Vincent's whole life, pretty much. Uh, interestingly enough, pretty much all of what we know about Vincent is because of the letters he sent to his brother, which his brother kept. So at least Vincent had a brother who was on his side. Yeah. Uh, so after much persuading from Theo, Vincent finally gave in and... 
and join and join the Academy Royale des Bois Arts in 1880. Des Beaux Arts, you fucking idiot. <laughs> well, okay. Academy Royale des Beaux Arts. <laughs> French words they can be pronounced different ways depending on the spelling. So like Academie Royale des Beaux Precisely. Arts. Precisely. Okay. <laughs> uh, he studied anatomy and the standard rules of modeling and perspective. Important. Mm -hmm. mm. Then only after a year, Vincent returned back home again to live with his parents. Aww. However, during oh. this stay, he continued to practice his drawings and would often use his neighbors as subjects. Cool. Mm -hmm. Then in August of 1881, Vincent's life would change. His recently widowed cousin, named Cornelia Vostricker, came to stay with Vincent's family and Vincent was elated. Okay. The two quickly became close and would often take long walks with one another. Mm. Cornelia was seven years older than Vincent, had an eight-year-old son, was a widow, and was also his cousin. Oh. But this did not stop Vincent from falling madly in love with her. Oh. <laughs> he promptly announced his love for her. She responded by saying, No, nay, never. <laughs> <laughs> so Vincent became depressed and lonely yet again. Oh, poor mm. fucking Vincent. Yeah. Then Vincent traveled to Eton and started practicing drawing with charcoal and pastels under the advice from the famous artist Anton Mauve. Mauve. Something around there. Okay, that's a color uh, that I would never use to describe anything, hmm. but I've heard my mom use the word many times, and I still don't know how to pronounce it. Wow. Mauve. Okay. <laughs> Mauve. <laughs> uh, but Vincent was still unhappy because he was still madly in love with his cousin Cornelia. Oh. So he went to her in Amsterdam where she refused him again and her dad told him to leave them alone. Oh. So in a logical and well thought out plan, Vincent proceeded to hold his hand over the fire of a lamp and, what the fuck? and said, quote, Let me see her for as long as I can keep my hand in the flame. <laughs> this didn't work. <laughs> Cornelia's father basically told him that it, it would never work out. Not because she was his cousin, or seven years older, or anything like that, just because he couldn't support a family. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my yes. family. <laughs> what? Uh, moving on. Then the famous artist Anton Mauve, or however you say Mauve. it, uh, took on Vincent as an apprentice and trained him with watercolor. Vincent worked with watercolor for a month before, you guessed it, oh. getting in a fight with Anton Moav, moving back in with his parents, and spiraling into depression. Oh, God. Yeah. Then Vincent got really sick with gonorrhea and oh. spent three weeks in a hospital. <laughs> soon therefore, after... Uh, soon therefore. Soon, soon thereafter, therefore. though, <laughs> he started experimenting painting with oils and was very pleased with the result. Cool. Uh, he made another great life decision by moving in with a prostitute named Klesina Maria Hornick and her daughter. Hornick. Hornick. That's not even... I don't even have to say anything. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, then she got pregnant again, and Vincent's father pressured Vincent to abandon Klesina. So Vincent did this and became all depressed again. Oh, mm -hmm. god damn it! <laughs> it only gets worse. <sighs> yeah. In 1883, Vincent yet again moved back in with his parents. Not really because he wanted to, but just because he was so fucking lonely. Oh my god. Okay, so this is like, what, number four? Were you yeah, something like oh that. We should god. have been keeping track. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Take a uh, shot every time he moves back into his parents. Oh, we'd be dead. <laughs> uh, while living with his parents here, he started drawing regularly. Mm. He enjoyed drawing outside and used his neighbors and scenes around him as subjects. Oh. Then in 1884, a girl named Margot. 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 Mm. Is that it? Yep. Really? I don't think he pronounced the T as Margot. Margot. Who was the daughter of a neighbor and 10 years older than Vincent, fell in love with Vincent, and Vincent fell in love with her. Perhaps finally there will be a happy love ending for Vincent. I hope so. Yeah. They wanted to marry each other, but neither family approved. Oh. So Margot became upset and overdosed on... Strychnine. 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 Oh my god. Mm -hmm. She almost died. She only survived because Vincent rushed her to a hospital, but that kind of marked the end of their relationship. Yeah, that, mm, that's kind of weird to come back from. Yeah. Mm. Then his dad died. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So during the next two years, Vincent painted over 200 oil paintings. That's a lot. <laughs> uh, unsurprisingly, his paintings set a very depressed tone to them and were often dark in color. Hmm. I'm not going to describe any of his paintings over the air because it would be impossible to do them justice. Mm. So just Google some of his paintings. They are really incredible. Yep, yep. they are. <laughs> so yeah, he's a great painter, but nobody is appreciating his work. He's totally alone and penniless. 
Finally though, in 1885, a dealer in Paris became interested in Vincent's work and exhibited Vincent's drawings entitled The Potato Eaters, okay. along with a series of peasant character study paintings. I've seen these. These are great. Yeah, mm -hmm. they are. Uh, but there wasn't a ton of positive response to these paintings, and then a peasant woman living near Vincent became pregnant, and the town priest claimed Vincent had raped her, so the priest forbade anybody oh. in the town to model for Vincent's oh, paintings. Oh my god. Yeah. So he had to just leave the town. Yeah. Uh, he moved to Antwerp, where he lived in absolute poverty, and his staple diet became nothing but bread, tobacco, and coffee. Okay, I'm gonna make a joke right now about <laughs> that being me, just not in Antwerp. Yeah. <laughs> it basically is. Uh, it got worse, though. His teeth became unstable and painful, and he also became an alcoholic. Oh, Jesus. He was also admitted to the hospital for two months because of syphilis. Jesus fucking yes. Christ! <laughs> Uh, through all this, Vincent continued to experiment with painting and visited many museums studying the art within. Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it only gets worse. Oh, so, fuck! In 1886, Vincent made a step upwards by attending classes at the Antwerp Academy. But this quickly went downhill, of course. Ugh. First of all, Vincent was pretty much constantly sick because he was a heavy drinker, had a terrible diet, and was always smoking. Mm. He also got in fights with the Academy directors because of his unconventional art style. In one instant, Vincent, in one instant, Vincent, <laughs> in one instance, Vincent was asked to paint the ancient statue of Venus of Milo, Greek statue. Uh, Vincent responded by drawing the limbless, naked torso of a peasant Flemish woman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, his instructor reacted by drawing on Vincent's painting in order to fix it, but tore the paper in the process. Wow. Vincent flew into a rage and yelled at the instructor, quote, You clearly do not know what a young woman is like. God damn it. A woman must have hips, buttocks, a pelvis in which she can carry a baby. Did he actually say that? Yeah, I think so. That's so crazy. again, like, he's just interested in normal people. Yeah. Not this Greek goddess or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I can see why that would be unpopular at the time. For sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People want to forget that stuff. Yeah. Because of things like this, Vincent was forced to repeat this year in the Academy, but contrary to popular belief, he was not kicked out. Well, at least that. Yeah, he did leave, though, soon thereafter. Oh. Uh, he moved in with his brother and close friend Theo in Paris, where he lived for a couple years. He Here he continued to study painting while painting his own things as well. Vincent painted the things that he saw around him, such as parks, rivers, buildings, etc. Again, just normal life. Mm. He painted another 200 paintings during this time. Again, go look at them. I won't do them justice on the show. No. <laughs> In 18... They are very beautiful. I love the colors. The strokes. The they are the northern check section. Mm. <laughs> In 1888, Vincent moved to Arles in southern France, where he found the culture oh, appealing yet exotic. It's gotta be like Arles. Arles. I, th I think it's actually Arles. Oh, I, I prefer Arles. That's funnier. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I could be wrong, though. He painted many of his famous paintings here, including paintings such as The Night Café, Bedroom in Arles, Arles, whatever, Van Gogh's Chair, Starry Night Over the Rhone, and Café... Not the Rhine? No, the Rhine is uh, northern Germany. I didn't even know there was a Rhone. It sounds like Rhone. a joke. I think it's southern <laughs> France, yeah. Oh. Uh, and Café Terrace at night. But during this all, Vincent's health continued to deteriorate. He suffered from smoker's cough and was still a heavy drinker. Mm. Mm. Yes. Uh, then the French painter named Paul Guaguin, <laughs> something like that, I, I don't know, <laughs> moved in with Vincent and the two painted together. Uh, but their personalities did not work well together and they would often bicker and fight. Oh. Still, Vincent created some of his other famous paintings during this time. Then Vincent cut off his own ear. Okay, there you go. There it is. <laughs> yeah, everyone just knows he cut off his ear. Yeah. So details are fuzzy on the exact circumstances surrounding this. It seems in the days prior, Vincent and Paul had fought a lot and Paul had threatened to leave. Vincent needed Paul to stay because Vincent saw him as a friend and mentor, so this kind of threw him over the edge. Oh. Vincent had also been drinking quite a bit of absinthe. Oh! <laughs> yeah. The so... goddess. <laughs> So reportedly, Vincent looked himself in, locked himself in his own room where he was assaulted by voices in his head telling him to cut off his own oh my ear. God. So he cut it off with a razor. He then bandaged it up and went to visit a brothel, but collapsed from blood, blood loss on the way. Oh, that is so sad. Yeah. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> God damn it. I know. Then go. Yeah. A policeman found him the next morning and took him to a hospital. The ear was brought to the hospital, but too much time had elapsed for a reattachment to be an option. Mm -hmm. Paul then moved away, and the two friends never saw each other again. Surprisingly, Vincent recovered from the injury, but was more depressed than ever. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Then a flood damaged Vincent's home and destroyed many of his paintings. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So he moved in with a doctor. Funny story real quick. 
To pay the doctor for staying with him, Vincent drew a painting of the doctor entitled Portrait of Dr. Felix. The doctor hated the painting and used it as part of a chicken coop. Oh! Oh, that's Uh, a dick move. Yeah. 120 years later, though, the painting was estimated to be worth $50 million. Oh, there you go. Dr. (laughs) Felix, come on, dude. Yep. Get get with it. (laughs) After the two fell out, Vincent willingly admitted himself to the St. Paul Religious Asylum in southern France. There's such thing as a religious asylum? Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It was basically a prison, though. Oh, of course. (laughs) He was kept in a barred cell and was only allowed to go on walks if he was accompanied by an employee. Wow. He continued to paint here, and some of his works were deemed good enough to be exhibited in the artist's Independence Art Show in Paris. Vincent did not go to the show with his work, but get this. Okay. The famous artist Claude Monet attended the convention and said Vincent's work was by far the best in the show. So finally he's getting recognized. Yeah, but it's not enough. Like, the people aren't recognizing how amazing his work is. That's really surprising. Yeah. So in 1890, Vincent left the religious clinic and moved closer to his brother, Theo. He lived in the countryside and fell in love with the surroundings. There are many of his paintings that show the countryside. Vincent explained to his brother that the vast wheat fields represented his, quote, sadness and extreme loneliness, (laughs) and that canvases will tell you what I cannot say in words, that is, how healthy and invigorating I find the countryside. And that is where we will leave Vincent for now. Again, up to this point, he has created hundreds of paintings, and pretty much nobody appreciates them. His <laughs> paintings were not really discovered until after his death, unfortunately. Oh my god, that's yeah. awful. Oh, this poor dude. Well, uh, god, since I'm severely depressed now, uh, let's jump over to Jacques Tati's End and Death. Okay. Now, when we left Tati, he was in shambles. Mm. Because his film Playtime had been way too expensive, his, he had to sell his company everything. Mm. Um, but he was working on more films at a new company, including one called Confusion. And this is the one I was talking about earlier, in which Hulot is accidentally killed oh, on yeah. air. Yeah, mm. really didn't like that character after a while. Mm. Um, he was working on another film called The Illusionist, which was a semi-autobiographical animated film about Tati. However, it was extremely controversial because the script omitted some nasty parts of Tati's life, including his illegitimate and estranged child in North England. Ah. Many of Tati's colleagues were shocked by this nasty bit of Tati history, so the film never took off. Oh, come on, he's just an average Frenchman. Oh, god damn it, <laughs> you can't say that on the air. Sorry. <laughs> So, uh, Tati died in 1982 from a pulmonary embolism. Ew. However, his work lives on. Playtime itself is a bit of a legend in the film world, although I personally had never heard of it until I went to film school. Uh, it has a 100% freshness rating on Rotten Tomatoes, wow. and it appears in a million and a half top ten lists on whatever stupid listicle site you might accidentally run into now and then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, enough about Playtime. I mean, I want to say just a little bit more about Playtime. Yeah. It's worth watching. Okay. Um, you will, again, you will either love it or hate it. Um... It's really hard to watch it charitably because mm. it's so different that you just get this... You kind of want to reject it because it feels a little pretentious. Like, mm. aha, I don't have to have a story in my film and you'll still watch it and say it's great. Um, but if you look at it just for the technical achievement, I mean, having so many simultaneous scenes going on in one yeah. shot, building a city, <laughs> you know, making using cardboard cutouts and they're still convincing on screen. Yeah, I mean, it's worth seeing. Huh. And, um, you know, again, if you don't like art films, you will probably not like Playtime. But Playtime might be one you want to watch like 10 minutes at a time. Hmm. I mean, because if you sit there through the whole two and a half hours of the thing, you're going to be like, I just want to die. When yeah. will this be? I don't want to watch these people eat dinner. You know, I, I don't want to watch this guy wander around an apartment anymore. Um, but hey, it, yeah, check it out. It's totally worth seeing. Okay. Uh, and now we'll go back to Vincent Van Gogh's End in Death. And no surprise, it is depressing. Okay. (laughs) I'm getting ready. (laughs) He did not have a happy ending. On July 27th, 1890, at the age of only 37, Vincent shot himself in the chest with a revolver. The bullet deflected off of one of his ribs and did not pierce any of his internal organs, so he didn't die. He walked back to the town uh, nearby where he was immediately attended by two doctors. Now this is going to sound really, really bad, but it's a revolver. Uh-huh. Did he have only one bullet? I, I don't know. Maybe he just really didn't want to do it after getting shot once. Oh, God, that hurts, and I'm not dying. <laughs> Let's yeah. uh, not do that again. I don't know. Ugh. Also, the chest doesn't seem like the best place to do it. <laughs> well, maybe he had a really good face. <laughs> True. Uh, yeah, he, well, he did. You can see it in his paintings. <laughs> yeah. uh, so he didn't die. He walked back, and the doctors attended to him. 
However, there was no surgeon nearby, so the bullet was not able to be removed. Mm. The doctors made Vincent comfortable and gave him a pipe to smoke while sitting in an armchair. <laughs> That's so ironic. Doctors gave him a pipe. I know. <laughs> uh, his brother Theo arrived the next morning and found Vincent in high spirits. Whoa. <laughs> However, within hours, Vincent began to fail, and he died early on July 29th, 1890. The last words he said were, The sadness will last forever. Oh, no. I know. That's so damn uh, sad. His funeral was just attended by a handful of people. He died in obscurity and not many people knew his name. His brother, friends, and his brother, friend, and most outspoken supporter, Theo, died only a year later, leaving Vincent to be even more forgotten. However, in the early 1900s, Vincent's letters and works began to show up in simple memorials, and his fame as a painter really took off, especially in Central Europe. Then, in the 1950s, after the World Wars, art began to grow more prominent in Europe and America once again, and Van Gogh's works rightfully became famous and invaluable. Hmm. He never got to see the legacy he left, but it exists nonetheless. Again, listeners, take a look at Van Gogh's works if you haven't before. They are truly incredible. That's just so... I don't, I don't know what that is about, like... People being a little too early to the game. I yeah. mean, that, that's that's really a, a commonality between Vincent Van Gogh and Jacques Tati is that their best works were only recognized pretty much after it was too late. Yeah, you know, uh, sad. Mm, it's God, really damn it. sad. <laughs> there is oh. no God. <laughs> oh oh yeah. God. Well, you know, I'm depressed enough, so I'm just gonna let's just go upstairs, and get out of here. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. To the surface. <laughs> <laughs> James, what are you going to do for the rest of the day? I think I'll take this afternoon to become a painter. Hmm. What will you paint first? Hmm. Maybe pickles. He's white after all. All I need is a blank canvas and some blue paint for his eyes. Mm, classic pickles. Yeah. What about you? I'm going to walk around the city and think. I got me a lot of thinking to do on modernity and consumerism and stuff. Alrighty then. <laughs> well, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. Feel free to send all your hate mail to we talk about dead people podcast at gmail.com. We will read all of it and not a lot. If you hate us, you're probably right. If you like us, though, please consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash we talk about dead people. Even as little much as a dollar, as much as it costs to... It cost to what? Pay a monkey to trim your beard. Create a victory garden. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Uh, throw us a dollar. Um, you know, hosting costs are expensive. Yeah. And we want to keep doing this because we absolutely love it. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, anything you can do. Five stars on iTunes, five stars on SoundCloud or whatever. Like on SoundCloud, follow us on SoundCloud, everything. Anything you can do actually helps tremendously. Mm. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sound of a hamster starting a lawnmower play you out. What? Do you think we'll end up like Van Gogh, hugely successful, but we won't know it? Uh, it would require us to be successful first. Yeah, but we're not going to be, a, you know, washouts, are we? So what if we are? Yeah. So what? Right? We're having fun. Yeah. These are the good days. Hmm. Yeah. Good days. <laughs>